Welcome to Guilty as Charged, the law behind the crimes, a podcast all about criminal law and policy specific to Arizona. You are listening to Arizona Supreme Court Oral Argument brought to you by Guilty as Charged. Thank you. This is our KCR 220175 Draper versus Gentry. Kelsey, you ready to proceed? Please do. Good morning. I'm Jessica Gattuso. I'm an attorney with Arizona Voice for Crime Victims. And I represent the victim and petitioner in this case, Lane Draper. Victims in Arizona have a constitutional right to refuse a defense discovery request. And the reasonable possibility standard does not adequately protect this non-disclosure right in a scenario such as the one that we have here involving an actual full-blown search and seizure and direct disclosure to the defense. Counsel, let me ask you a question about that. Um, If the court order precluded any sharing of this information by the entity that can download the GPS data to the defense and it only goes to the court, does that address the direct disclosure concern? It does not, and I can, for a few reasons. One, it will already be in the hands of the the defense hired technician. But if the court orders that it cannot be disclosed any further to an agent of the defendant or the defense attorney and it goes straight to the court, doesn't that address that concern? It does not. It will be in the hands of the agent of the defense, of the defendant, who will need to manipulate it or plans to manipulate it into a report or before giving it to respondent judge. What what if the information were extracted and retained by an independent third party? acting at the direction of the court, for example? I think there's still an analysis that needs to be done because it is at the direction of the court, a government actor. I think it implicates the Fourth Amendment, and I think... So anytime there's a subpoena, deuces tecum, ordering a third party to produce documents, you think the Fourth Amendment's implicated and there has to be a showing of probable cause? According to Carpenter, a few of the justices in Carpenter indicated that a subpoena deuces tecum or other form of compulsory process does implicate the Fourth Amendment, but to a, a less degree than a full-blown search and seizure. So it is, they are rights that need to be considered any time property of a victim or a witness is requested. The, and the Fourth Amendment, the touchstone is reasonableness. Correct. Um, usually we think of that in terms of probable cause for a warrant. You could also have subpoenas that come from a grand jury. It's, it's, it's reasonable. Is it too, is it, is it too uh, wide in its scope? You know, those kinds of things. It's looked at for reasonableness. So here, if you look at it for reasonableness, what's, what's wrong with the reasonable possibility standard as outlined in the Vander 2 case, which was a little bit more than just because we want it. it you had to sh- demonstrate at least uh, reasonableness, that it's a reasonable possibility the information will exist. For a couple of reasons, if you look to the Terry v. Ohio case in that, um, in discussing reasonableness, there's still a question of probable cause. The warrant requirement and probable cause are still factors to be considered when evaluating reasonableness. And 
The reason we're asking for a substantial probability is for a couple reasons. One, this court suggested it in the Thompson case because um, you specifically indicated that the reasonable possibility, importantly, does not trigger direct disclosure. And that substantial probability is better suited for just direct disclosure instead of a benchmark for an in-camera review. And here we have a direct disclosure. There's no way around it. But explain that to me. My understanding is that the court ordered that the, the GPS information be obtained by this third party and that it be produced to the court for an in-camera inspection. That doesn't strike me as direct disclosure. It's being characterized as an in-camera review. However, it's, it's not um, the traditional in-camera review. One, it's already been ordered. She's already ordered the six hours of GPS data to be disclosed. If you look at her ruling, she's not reviewing it for materiality. She's simply redacting it to the six hours because there's no way to download that limited time. So she does, she does not plan on reviewing it for materiality. If the defendant was able to extract just the six hours, it would have been direct disclosure. And that's what the defendant asked for in the beginning. If you look back to his first request for discovery in this case, which was from the third party, OnStar, or the third parties, OnStar and Berla Co., he asked for direct disclosure from those third parties. Well, could, wouldn't that be then simply that the judge is making an error in the application of the reasonable possibility uh, test and, the, and the, the kind of balancing that we talked about in Vanders that had to be done with the in-camera review. Uh, there's a line in Vanders that says that the application, you look at the review, it doesn't mean to automatically turn over the records. The judge needs to determine that it is essential to the defense that, they ha that it has the records. So perhaps here there's simply... Um, the missing link of the determination that something is indeed essential or material or highly necessary for the defense. So it's our position, if the court decides with Nez that the reasonable possibility is the appropriate standard for um, a physical search and seizure, that, that does not comply with the Fourth Amendment. Well, but counsel, I, and, and I'm going to cite a case I don't think you, the party may have referenced, uh, CV City of Seattle, it's a U.S. Supreme Court case, 387 U.S. 541, in that uh, the court looked at administrative subpoenas that were being issued by a federal agency and found that, you know, the Fourth Amendment issue is raised, but it's addressed within the context of a party being able to contest a subpoena. And the distinction here being made that where you uh, have a warrant issued, you know, the, the, the state shows up with a warrant and you comply. So the need to establish probable cause in advance of that is necessary to address those Fourth Amendment concerns. The, the contrast that a subpoena presents is that uh, in, in, in an instance of a defendant seeking information under Rule 15.1, is that they got to seek it by motion first and get court approval, which affords the victim and or the state the opportunity to contest the reasonableness of the request. So I, I, I get the Fourth Amendment issue that you raise. I think the, the question is instinctive, but uh, wouldn't you agree, though, that that reasonableness component is addressed in being able to challenge a subpoena? In being, being able to challenge a subpoena, maybe, but in this instance, it is not a subpoena for the victim to produce documents, to go through his own records right. I, and I get, produce. But, you know, factually, it's a little bit distinguishable, but the principle sort of is the same. 
uh, in, if, if this plays out as it should, the defendant comes forward, files a 15.1 motion with the court to say that I can't get this any other way. And then the victim gets the opportunity to contest what's being requested, uh, it gets to challenge the reasonable possibility of the information and whether or not it should be produced for in-camera inspection. I, I think in that context, you, you have the reasonable concern being addressed that takes into account, again, what I think is an instinctive question about Fourth Amendment concerns over reasonable searches and seizures. Would you agree with that analysis? I mean, it does give the victim a chance to be heard and an opportunity to object. Correct. And so in, in that instance, you know, I'm going to follow this thought through, and I, I'd like your, your comment on this. In doing that, then, it affords the victim the opportunity to refuse a defense discovery request, which supports the victim's right to justice and due process. Correct. But I think to adequately balance the competing interests, rights and interests of the party, it would require more than a reasonable possibility. Because of the lack of the gatekeeping function of the court, it's skipping that step here. It is direct disclosure. There's no way around it. Um, and it's a full-blown search and seizure. So not only does it need to comply with the Victim's Bill of Rights, but also the Fourth Amendment and Private Affairs Clause. Um, and reasonable possibility, as the Carpenter in case indicated, falls well short of probable cause. It is the standard that you're urging for <clears throat> disclosure when a victim is involved any different than a standard that you're urging for when a non-victim is involved but has Fourth Amendment rights at issue? It is different because of the added constitutional right to refuse a defense discovery request. Well, what's, what's the difference in the standard? I guess that's what I'm really getting at. I believe the difference is that because of the victim's bill of rights and the right to refuse discovery, the substantial probability is appropriate for direct disclosure. Okay. And from so a what victim. would it be for a non-victim in this scenario? Say here, in this case, perhaps it's, it's Mr. Jackson's vehicle, a non-victim who they want the same type of information from. What's the standard to get under 15.1 if he asserts, well, I have a Fourth Amendment right in that, uh, in that information in my vehicle. What's the standard? The standard would be probable cause or something at least equivalent. And when my reading of all the standards, it starts with speculation, and then it's reasonable possibility, then reasonable probability, and substantial probability. So it wouldn't be and any I, different than the standard you're advocating for a victim in this case? Well, I believe probable cause falls somewhere between reasonable probability and substantial probability. Okay. And I think it's the victim's bill of rights that gives pushes the standard towards that substantial probability for victims. And it's probable for, cause to what? Probable cause that it will help the defense, be material to the defense, uh, be exculpatory evidence? I mean, probable cause to what? A, a showing that the material being sought includes evidence that would be material to the defense or cross-examination. So how are they going to do that if they don't know what the GPS information is? I can think of some ways in this case by changing some of the facts that the defendant could meet a substantial probability test. I don't even think, given the facts of this case, he could re meet the reasonable possibility test. Um, here he's seeking the information to bolster a third-party defense. He wants to show that the victim had the opportunity to commit the crime, to shower, and hide the weapon. 
He has not done a good job articulating what he thinks could be in that GPS data to bolster any of those arguments at all. He already has what he needs to make those arguments. Everybody agrees Draper was at the scene, he left, and he came back. Draper says that, Nez says that, Jackson says that, the 911 caller says that, and Nez's girlfriend says that. They all say that. So he has not articulated what he needs in that GPS data or what could be in there to bolster those arguments or how it would change his cross was it really my, of the victim. I'm just stop you there. That wasn't really the, the gist of my, of my question. It wasn't so much going to the facts of this case, the application of whatever standard <clears throat> we arrive at. It was more of a just thinking it through. I was a bit concerned with probable cause or even substantial compliance. Is it, is it a bar too high when you're talking about seeking evidence that you don't know what, it, what exactly it, it will show? Uh, as in Vanders too, we don't know what the medical records will show until somebody reads it. We don't know what the GPS information will be until somebody downloads it. So that, that's really my, the gist of my question. Will it be possible for somebody to actually meet that standard? I think it would, and in this case specifically, to show a substantial probability, the first step would be to explain what system they plan to access, because it's been all different systems throughout this litigation, and what the system is actually capable of tracking or what type of data can be extracted. That'd be the first step. Second step, just to change the facts a little bit on how the defendant here could meet substantial probability. I believe if you had Draper telling the police, I remember being in my truck in that horseshoe parking lot all night long. I slept there and I never moved. Then you have Jackson tell police that he came out of the apartment looking for Draper found him asleep in the car, or in the car, not asleep, full of blood, holding a murder weapon, or holding a bloody knife. And the two of them got in the truck together and drove to a location where Draper showered and hit the, hid the knife. I think in that scenario, Nez could meet the substantial probability standard by showing why, what would be in the GPS data and why he, he needs it to show which story is correct and to cross-examine these two individuals. At the inception of the investigation, didn't the police demonstrate probable cause to uh, obtain location information, although they, they believed in the warrant that it would likely uh, be derived from a, from a phone or a computer, correct? Correct. I believe it was limited to phones and computers, and that search warrant was obtained within hours of responding to the scene. The investigation had just begun. They began with the two individuals that called 911, which were Draper and Nez, and um, named the two of them in the search warrant and the limited facts they knew at that time. And the facts and circumstances have changed greatly since that search warrant. And the fact they may have had probable cause or reason to believe that there could be evidence of a crime in that truck or on Draper at that time based on the limited information does not translate to reasonable possibility or probable cause or substantial probability two years later after a full investigation has occurred. And Draper has been eliminated as a suspect based on everything we know today, based on all the evidence that was obtained by the police since then. Well, counsel, if we go back to a point that the Vice Chief Justice made earlier with respect to how the trial court applied the standard here in order to uh, order 
access to the information, uh, maybe that's the better place to look at for the third-party defense. Uh, but what about with respect to impeaching Mr. Draper? Mr. Draper says, you know, he, he passed out, doesn't know where he went, uh, and, you know, and he was in the parking lot asleep. But what if the GPS data then uh, provides information that he actually drove to 10 different locations? Maybe none of them have a dumpster, but he drove to 10 different locations uh, or, or other places. Wouldn't that at least be an opportunity to impeach Mr. Draper's ability to perceive and testify accurately and contest whether or not he really was uh, blackout drunk? Well, he already has information that he at least drove to the other side of the parking lot and came back. He has information. He left and came back. That gives him that opportunity. As far as crossing Draper, <coughs> the defendant has not articulated how he can cross someone who doesn't remember anything. No matter what the GPS data shows, he can't impeach impeach someone who doesn't have a memory. Well, be different if he, just to play it out, he says he doesn't know because he, he didn't vibe too much. Uh, but if he drove to 10 different places, doesn't that allow for an argument that, well, you were able to drive to 10 different places with no accident, going through red lights, stop signs, this, that, and the other? Um, doesn't this objectively establish that you really were uh, sober enough to be able to do this kind of driving? It and could I don't, I don't arguably hang everything on this point, but that's a reasonable argument. I mean, it could arguably be helpful. Could be helpful to point the finger at Draper or maybe to cross-examine him, but not to the level of a substantial probability or even a reasonable possibility. And if I may reserve the rest of my time for rebuttal. Good morning, may it please the court. Uh, my name is Daniel Fenzel. I'm with the Maricopa County Office of the Legal Advocate. I represent real party interest uh, Jordan Nez. With me today is Vern Velasco of Arizona Attorneys for Criminal Justice, who I will be splitting time with today. The Fourth Amendment is a guarantee against searches and seizures that are unreasonable under the law. Likewise, the Private Affairs Clause guarantees against disturbance without authority of law. Critically, the Thompson Framework for in-camera review requests accounts for these guarantees because it addresses the important policy issue at the heart of this case, which is how are trial courts supposed to navigate the competing interests between crime victims and criminal defendants when they conflict? Mr. Finzel, may I ask how you're going to divide your time? Just I want to ask you questions that you plan on Mr. Velasco. Oh, yes, of course. Um, uh, in terms of the amount of time. The, the substance. Uh, the oh, the substance. Yeah. Mr. Velasco, I believe, will be uh, uh, addressing the issue of uh, Rules 15, 15 1 and 15 2, the potential impact on, on the, those rules of criminal, criminal procedure. Okay. And your Fourth Amendment and victims' rights. Uh, yes, Your Honor. Got it. So let me ask a question about that then. Uh, in making a determination of the reasonable possibility that this information is going to be material to, uh, to the defendant's defense or to impeach a witness. What facts deduced or deduced from the investigation support seeking this GPS data? Um, the facts that support the uh, seeking of the GPS data uh, go to uh, coloring a third-party defense. Number one, motive. 
Uh, we know from the record that there was an argument between the Draper brothers uh, during the night of the incident. Uh, how number is two, how is GPS pertinent to that? Uh, so it wouldn't be pertinent to the motive, but it would be pertinent to the opportunity. Uh, so opportunity being uh, uh, Lane Draper tells uh, police that he arrived back at the scene around 8 o'clock in the morning, whereas we have a... But, but with respect, and this is why I asked the question about, the, about facts, because if he's passed out sleeping in his truck in a different area of the complex and drives back to where the apartment is, how is that inconsistent with what he said? And how does the GPS data establish anything otherwise it, with respect to that, it, regarding facts that have been adduced in the case? Uh, the GPS data would show um, potentially the route that uh, Mr. Draper took uh, after he left the apartment complex. Uh, I think the, the justices' questions were well placed as to where did he go? Did he run red lights? Did he go to 10 different places? Were any of those places a canal? Were any of those places a dump? Um, but, that, but that's assuming that what the defendant's arguing is accurate. So what evidence is there adduced from the investigation that allows the defendant to argue he did it? Mr. Draper did this. Uh, so it would be in terms of, um, in terms of the opportunity to, to commit the offense, Your Honor. Uh, in terms but but of that takes me back again. And I want to get out of this never-ending loop. The defendant is arguing Mr. Draper did it. Therefore, he did it, and this GPS information will support that. Because if the GPS data shows that, well, he, he didn't leave the apartment complex, then he still could have been passed out in his truck. It doesn't establish that he committed the murder. If he drove away from the complex and was gone for that period of time, then he's correct when he says he came back at 830. Help me make this distinction. Well, Your Honor, I think it's uh, relevant either way uh, in terms of either informing the defense on the front end or uh, establishing opportunity to commit the offense on, on the back end. We have uh, attendant circumstances uh, to the incident uh, to show that a, a knife was uh, found in Mr. Draper's truck. Um, we have, um, and we have the police uh, going to a dumpster on the scene and uh, photographing evidence, but not seizing any of it. And so I, I think the overall circumstances of the incident, the GPS would, would um, fill in the uh, opportunity to commit the offense, uh, coloring the third-party offense. Um, why, does the, why does the knife matter when there's no blood? Because as I understand it, there was no blood on that knife that was found, right? So why, why is that relevant? Uh, the knife would be uh, relevant, it, assuming, and of course there's an assumption that, uh, that testing would yield some sort of DNA or fingerprints or, or something to that effect. Um, but the knife would be relevant maybe at the trial level to, uh, to establish the, that second prong of opportunity. Um, but you know there is a knife in the truck, so you can cross-examine him on that and say, yeah, you had a knife in your truck, right? Yes, Your Honor. Uh, critically, the uh, reasonable possibility test for in-camera review uh, balances the uh, interests uh, such that um, any search of the crime victim's property is reasonable, regardless of what the search subject is. Yeah, my concern with this is that, as um, Ms. Gattuso brought up, this is, a, this is more of a direct disclosure. It's not going to him personally or counsel personally, but someone that they've retained. It's not going to the court directly, as happened in Vanders too. Uh, it's going to a third party. And so why wouldn't we hold uh, you to a higher standard 
to make that kind of disclosure to a third party, even if the information ultimately extracted is turned over to the court to review for materiality and, and such? The, what the reasonable possibility test provides, aside from the barometer or the prima facie case that a defendant needs to make on the front end in terms of reasonable possibility or whatever the evidentiary barometer may be, um, to address the crime victim's concerns about where the data goes afterwards um, is uniquely served by the imposition of time, place, and manner restrictions by the trial court playing the gatekeeper role. Uh, here we have that. Uh, no, 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 but would you agree with me that it is more intrusive than, a, than what happened in Vanders, simply having the court review it? And, the, and I think we even said, well, it, that's an intrusion itself, a court review. Isn't this more intrusive? Because now I've got another person. So is it? Do you agree with me? <laughs> it's not more intrusive to the extent that um, an automobile is of the is a type of property that is regularly routinely searched in the context of the criminal justice process. Um, we have case law in terms of the victim's interest into general criminal justice process. Because I don't know if any victim ever wakes up one morning wanting to be part of the criminal justice process or because of any action on their part, they necessarily must be. It's actually a, a consequence of somebody else's act. I, I wouldn't conflate the two in that regard. But I think to the, the question that the Vice Chief Justice asked, um, you know, that, that is something to bear in mind, that this is an intrusion into somebody else's property uh, and, and wanting to take that into account with the appropriate appropriate. <coughs> appropriate guidance, if you will? Correct, Your Honor. Um, and so we see some examples of what would be an extraordinary intrusion into the, into the crime victim's um, privacy interests. We have, um, in the interest of AB, the New Jersey Supreme Court case, where there's interesting dicta about um, what are such unreasonable or irregular exams that um, perhaps a higher standard is called for. Uh, as a prerequisite to in-camera review, uh, those being uh, compulsory um, psychological or gyne gynecological exams, or in the case of People versus Browning out of California, um, a court order to undergo a surgical procedure uh, to extract bullet fragments or bullet slugs from uh, a crime victim's body. Those are those intrusions into the person we believe the balance of, of the crime victim's rights versus the criminal defendant's due process interests would more likely come out on the side of the crime victim's rights to avoid that sort of bodily intrusion. Should, should there be a, well, would that be a different stand, a standard then? Like, for example, as you just said, removing the bullet fragments or looking into somebody's house, you know, searching their house, or the layout seems more intrusive. The more intrusive the invasion is, does the standard differ? Or is it simply in applying the standard, the court should balance um, the interest differently? I, uh, no, I, I don't think it would be applying a different standard based on a, a sliding scale of what the what the um, interest is or what the item or premises to be searched is. Um, certainly, we have third-party held records in automobile. We have um, a body of case law 
regarding home inspection cases uh, in the interest of AB, uh, the McGinty case out of Ohio. Do so you think a reasonable probability would be sufficient for a judge to enter an order that says you're going to have surgery to remove a bullet fragment? Because I think there's a reasonable possibility there might be evidence there. I, I don't think, even if reasonable possibility were the standard in that case, I don't think there's there are a large class of cases that a defendant would be able to meet that sort of compelling need in any event. And certainly uh, the evidentiary standard to uh, justify an intrusion to somebody's person to extract a bullet fragment would have to be very compelling. And so I think in those limited classes of cases where there's such intrusion into the mind or the body of the crime victim, um, yes, uh, an elevated standard may be, uh, may be appropriate, but that's not what we have in this case. So in this it, it seems to me that Thompson or Venters, whatever we're calling it, um, attached the, the standard to in-camera review and, and suggested that if it weren't in-camera review that a higher standard would be necessary. And the things that you're talking about would not be in-camera review. Um, so is that, is that the, the line that we ought to be looking at, that this, this uh, process has an additional layer of confidentiality and, and discretion and third party, third, independent third party review? Yes, Your Honor. To the extent that in-camera review is implicated, uh, the Thompson process actually affords crime victims uh, greater protections than a criminal defendant would get in the ex parte search warrant process. Uh, notably, the crime victims have the opportunity to have notice and object at the front end of, uh, of a crime victim discovery request such as this one that happened in this case. Uh, there's a substantial burden, a not insubstantial burden, as this uh, court acknowledged in Thompson or Vanders II, um, that that clients routinely do not meet, as in Cerullo, Connor, Kellywood, Mandel. Um, and the, the prima facie showing that the, that the criminal defendant needs to meet in terms of demonstrating relevance, particularity, the involvement of a neutral and detached magistrate to vet their request, to determine whether or not there is a prima facie showing at all before the, the crime victim then receives the protection of t the time, place, and manner restrictions, input on those time, place, and manner restrictions to see how the court's going to craft them to serve the vic crime victim's privacy interest. And then finally, as a final protection, the in-camera review is a final barrier to the dissemination of the uh, whatever the raw material sought is going to be, how it's going to be disclosed. And the way I, and I asked this before about uh, the, what I call the Vanders two case, <laughs> uh, it, um, ha we had a sentence in there talking about the application after the in-camera review. It said something like, it, that doesn't mean you automatically turn over the medical records. The court needs to make a determination that the information is essential to the defense. So it <clears> seems <throat> like that's the, the, last, the last layer uh, if in circumstances in which you don't have an in-camera review um, ordered and you're sit looking for direct disclosure, it strikes me that the standard should be something along the lines of that, is it essential to the defense? I mean, raising like under due process, it's essential. Uh, is, is that correct or am I off on that? We would agree that it's a higher standard for direct disclosure, actual di direct disclosure as distinct from this case. Yeah. 
you're just disputing that this isn't direct disclosure. Correct. But, uh, but for a direct disclosure, something you, you agree would be higher, something along the lines of essential or uh, would it be what? Would it be probable cause, substantial compliance, reasonable probability? What, what would you land on? I would suggest, Your Honor, uh, the, the standard that this court suggested in Thompson itself, uh, substantial probability, I believe that tracks with the Rule 15.1, 15.2 substantial need um, requirement in terms of echoing that language. Uh, but yes, uh, for direct disclosure, we would agree. Uh, is that Thompson, the I'm sorry, agree with what? You just said you wanted the Thompson standard for direct disclosure. I'm sorry, I should clarify. We would, um, we'd, we would support an, a higher standard for direct disclosure, but for in-camera review, the Thompson standard remaining. Okay. Um, did, the, did the court do an adequate enough job here, or any job, in, in determining um, how this data would be seen um, by the person extracting it. Um, you know, I think w what you're advocating still requires um, a judgment that this is not direct disclosure. Um, and did the, did the judge examine um, how this information would be extracted and, and what the independent um, or the, the third the third party uh, doing this at, at uh, your uh, your supervision would would actually see. We know that the trial court vetted whether or not there would need to be a power source. We know whether or not the trial court vetted um, how the report generated by the expert uh, would be sent back to the trial court, placed in a sealed mm -hmm. Manila envelope, sent to the trial court. Uh, defense counsel would have no part in seeing that report before it goes. Of course, to the extent that um, that is something that um, that is a potential avenue for inadvertent disclosure, possibly, um, we believe that that could be further addressed, uh, perhaps on remand for uh, time, place, and manner restrictions, reevaluation of those things. But we wouldn't urge that that's an that's an issue. That's a reason to uh, reconfigure the Thompson standard. Uh, the time, place, and manner restrictions really are the area where the crime victim gets the most protection. And here, the crime victim did have input in terms of how long the encounter would take. Um, the trial court did order that the vehicle would have to be made available within 48 hours. We read that as not necessarily at the vict crime victim's home. We're not explicitly tied to that being at the crime victim's home. There's a question as to whether or not the vehicle is running. Uh, so there's a question as to would that need to be towed. But again, those are all things that the trial court is uniquely poised to address. Is Ms. Gattuso correct that the trial court is not going to review this for the materiality of the GPS evidence? I'm sorry? Well, Ms. Gattuso said that the trial court doesn't intend to review this for the materiality of the GPS evidence. Is that correct? Uh, the trial court is going to review this for the materiality insofar as it, as it uh, undermines the alibi given by, um, given by Mr. Draper as to his timeline. Uh, that's the evidentiary value in addition to impeachment here. Um, and is it accurate? Can I add one, one additional question that I have? Is it accurate that there will need to be additional data beyond just the D GPS data that will need to be extracted? I think there was an argument there will need to be additional data, like Bluetooth data and radio data and audio data, beyond just the 
the GPS data as part of the extraction. Is that accurate? I believe, Your Honor, may be referring to the search warrant language um, that was offered. Uh, as far as we're concerned, we're only seeking a report on GPS data. Um, so, counsel, am I correct in, in understanding what you're saying, too, that if the court were to order uh, this, uh, this company in extracting the data, that they're not to provide any information to you, not talk to you about it, you can't be present while it's being extracted, that that's all acceptable to the defense? Yes. Again, I think the trial court is uniquely positioned to craft time, place, and manner restrictions. Defense counsel is not 100% indisposable in this process, so long as there's some sort of uh, assurance that, that the data, if material, comes to defense counsel through the trial court. Uh, seeing my time, um, I simply uh, <laughs> urge that the 2021 Thompson Standard satisfy his Fourth Amendment uh, and uh, private affairs clause uh, concerns, respects victims' rights, avoids a constitutional standoff between the parties, and furthers the truth-seeking process of the courts. We ask this court to affirm the rulings below. Thank you. And I cede the rest of my time to Mr. Velasco. <laughs> and now for some speed talking. <laughs> uh, may it please the court, Bernardo Velasco, on behalf of Arizona Attorneys for Criminal Justice. Um, Justice Montgomery asked whether or not our rules of procedure satisfy the reasonableness standard of the Fourth Amendment. That is somewhat of a paraphrase, but the structure of Rule 15.1G, 1 and 2, together with Thompson, address all of the concerns vis-a-vis -vis either a person in possession of chattel that would be searched, and it satisfies the needs of a victim's rights. What that procedure begins with is the demonstration of a substantial need on the part of the defendant. If that's met and the person is a victim, we now do the Thompson analysis, which asks about whether there's a reasonable possibility. It limits the amount of discovery that might occur, and it also directs that that information go to a judge for in-camera review. There's a question here about whether this is direct disclosure. We're talking about a vendor that's going to receive data and transmit it to a court. That's just a custodian, and the orders of the court here um, can be enforced via contempt proceedings if defense counsel or defendant gets a hold of that information before authorization of the court. Could I interrupt you with a quick question? Yes. Uh, you said you start with substantial need before you get to the victims. Victim, we said, at least for in camera, was reasonable possibility. So it strikes me that a substantial need must be less lower than that standard. So what is it? To take to get a substantial showing of substantial need? So substantial need goes to materiality. Reasonable possibility, Your Honor, goes to whether or not the thing will be found in the, okay. in the in disclosure. And I see that I'm out of time. If I could just briefly touch on... on I'm sorry, point. Mr. Velasco. You, you guys get to divide up No, time. that's fair. <laughs> All right. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Your Honor. Ms. Catuzzo. So I recognize that Rule 15.1G is not the same thing as a subpoena that is taken, but it strikes me that adopting the rule that you propose would apply directly to subpoenas deuces taken in civil cases. Um, it would substantially change both the law and the practice in, in, in the civil side of the House. Why am I wrong about that? I think it would depend on a lot of things. In this context of this case, I'm talking about a full-blown search and seizure. Well, except we're not, we're not writing just for this case. We're going to write an opinion that applies it, to Arizona generally. In a civil context, it would depend on what 
the subpoena was for. If it's implicating the Fourth Amendment and private affairs clause, there, sh there should be that argument to be made by whoever's being compelled to produce whatever it is they're being asked to produce. Those rights don't go away, and they should be acknowledged and adequately balanced in whatever context um, a person is being asked to produce evidence. Those, those rights need to be acknowledged, and victims need to be told they don't lose these rights by virtue of becoming a, a victim in a case and a witness. And to touch on what was just brought up, Zolan tell us, tells us that the standard must be different. A lesser evidentiary burden is required for an in-camera review as opposed to ultimately overcoming the competing interest. It does require a different standard. So here the victim is actually playing two roles. The victim is, is obviously a statutory victim, but this, the victim is also the subject of a third-party defense. Doesn't that change the analysis a little bit in terms of, of the um, complete defense uh, right that the, that the criminal defendant has? I would hope not. I think that would invite abuse in naming a victim as a third party just to diminish their arguments under the Victim's Bill of Rights and the Fourth Amendment and private Council, affairs laws. I, I wonder, to, to, to that point, if, uh, if that concern doesn't get addressed uh, by uh, what the defense mentioned, that you know, in order for a court to grant a 15.1G motion in the first place, there has to be a substantial need as a materiality analysis there. And maybe that's missing here, too, where in light of a third-party defense, the court has to make a determination about whether GPS data of this truck, independent of who owns it, is this really material to the defense asserted under all the information that's available to the court? I think the court could absolutely start there. I think the defense, the defendant needs to show a substantial need to a constitutional dimension. If it and, and, and I ask that, though, because your, your point's well taken, that if, if the door is open uh, just by naming a victim as a third-party defendant, then that'll that could happen just a, as a, a regular practice point. Uh, but if we emphasize that regardless of who's asserted to be a third-party defendant, that that 15.1G materiality finding is significant and has to be made. And I don't know if the record here establishes that. I don't believe the record here establishes that at all. I don't think the defendant has articulated what, if anything, could be in that GPS data or what he's looking for in the GPS data that's material to his defense, material to his arguments he wants to make. He already has what he needs to make those arguments. Thank you, Ms. Catuzzo. Thank you. Counsel, thank you for the supplemental briefing this matter and the oral argument. The case is now at issue. An opinion will issue in due course, and the court will remain on the bench pending the next argument. Thanks for joining us today on Guilty as Charged. Please subscribe to our podcast to get more great discussion about law and crimes specific to Arizona, and also get access to Arizona Supreme Court audio. You can find Jake on Twitter at JacobBrownAZ. 